It's always great just to come and share God's word after we've been led in that kind of way and worship into his presence. I'm looking forward to what he has to say to us this morning. Just say tonight we're going to look in Ephesians at the blessing of election. So that'll be interesting. Something been interesting for me this week, so hopefully, um, yeah, we'll know God speaking clearly. Okay, we're, we're looking at Daniel and the last time we, we looked together at Daniel, we focused on, on Nebuchadnezzar. And what we saw was that the, the big problem in his life was pride. And that this is a big problem. Because God hates pride. And God will deal with pride. As Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. But the reason why God is so implacably opposed to pride being because fundamentally pride is anti-love. Because we cannot love God as we should and we cannot love the people that God loves as we should when pride is reigning in our hearts. However, whenever sin of, of any kind reigns in us in the sense of being the dominant force, being the the dominant characteristic of our life, rather than the lordship and the reign of Christ. Whenever that's the case, then God will deal with that. And the, the Bible outlines for us two main ways in life that God deals with us when that's happening. Both of which are found here, I believe, in the experience of Nebuchadnezzar. I nearly said Nehemiah, but I'm jumping my books. But that's the, the way, first of all, we're going to look just now, the way of reason, and then the way of discipline. And the way of reason is always God's first option. God always prefers to reason with us. He always prefers to do that. And certainly that's what he did in his dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we we concentrated on the last time we looked at his life together. And the way that that God tried to reason with Nebuchadnezzar was by virtue of his dream and Daniel's interpretation of it. But you know, as you look at at the Bible in a a wider sense, well, you soon see that this isn't just a one-off, rather that this is the pattern. This is God's norm, God's normal way of working and dealing with us. I mean, look at Jonah. First of all, God tried to reason with Jonah. He tried to persuade Jonah to go to Nineveh. Look at Pharaoh. Moses was first sent by the Lord to talk to Pharaoh, to seek by reason to persuade him to let God's people go. And then Isaiah, in the early stages of that great prophecy whose dominant theme is that of God's judgment on his sinful people. We find these words, we find this gracious offer from the Lord right at the very beginning in Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now Ronald Wallace, who's written on Daniel, and John Ockberg, a very well-known and effective preacher, actually follows him in this. He sees the way that that God works in our lives to reason with us in terms of the the parable of the sower and the seed. 
So God plants then, in one way or another, the seed of his word in our minds, in our hearts. And he works away at it and he, he leaves us to respond. You know, he maybe works directly through his word or, or through a sermon in church or something that we listen to online or on a CD. Or perhaps it's something that, that a friend says to us. Or as here it was in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps God speaks to us less often, but he does, through a dream. And we then begin to get an uneasy conscience, which as we honestly look at it and review it, we know isn't an indiscriminate attack of the devil, but it's actually God putting the finger directly, because that's the way he works, onto something in our lives. Because as we look at our lives, we realise that there's an area, perhaps areas in our lives, where we're not really letting God be sovereign. There's maybe bitterness or a grudge. There's a lack of forgiveness that's eating away at our heart. Or perhaps we're involved in a relationship that's not honouring to God. Or maybe our problem is just a simple all-round lack of holiness. The fact that the faith we proclaim and the life that we live just don't coincide. They just don't match together. In the parable of the sower though, it's made clear that that our ability to respond, to respond to God, to respond to the word, to the seed sown, the seed sown, depends ultimately on the soil. That is on the condition of the heart that it's sown into. And it also makes it clear that if we don't respond quickly to what God's saying to us, If we don't make responding to him a priority in our lives, well then, the forces of evil will see that life can get busy. We can get so caught up in in chasing after the things in that everybody else is chasing after in this world. So caught up in seeking this world's approval, wanting to be someone, to be recognized, to get somewhere in life. And so overwhelmed by the problems that inevitably come to the Christian who despite their claim of faith is still living basically in a godless world in this society we're part of. And we can get so involved in this that soon the thought of responding to God is forgotten by us. The importance of that is pushed way, way down the priorities of our life, and I'll tell you when the devil gets us living like this, then he's got us just where he wants us to be. Now, in this incident here in, in Daniel 4, God has been very clear about what the problem in Nebuchadnezzar's life is and what he needs to learn and the response that is required of him. It's made abundantly clear that his problem is pride. That the lesson he needs to learn is that God is sovereign, that he, and not Nebuchadnezzar, is the greatest being in the universe. And so important is this lesson that it's repeated in verse 17 and verse 25. That the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. 
And the response that, that God requires of Nebuchadnezzar to show that his pride is dealt with is underlined there in verse 27. That he demonstrate that he's given God first place in his life, that he's made God's priorities his priorities, that he demonstrate this by loving God and so by loving the people God loves. That is the underprivileged, the suffering, the despised and rejected. Verse 27, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And you see, Nebuchadnezzar was given everything he required to see his need. For he was given this dream. And he was given a man of faith like Daniel, who had the honesty, the courage, and the spiritual insight that was needed to be willing and able to interpret this dream for him. Now, now much of this, and a fair bit more, we looked at last time. We, we explored Daniel together. So how then is Nebuchadnezzar doing as we rejoin him here? Not too well, I'm afraid. Listen to what verse 29 says. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and by the glory of my majesty. Again then, I think we have to see that humility was not a prominent quality in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Of course, he's not the only person in the history of the world to suffer from this kind of problem, as we know only too well. For instance, just looking at it and thinking about it, I came across an interesting piece of information about Joe Namath, I think that's the right pronunciation. He was the, the outstanding quarterback in, in American football in the, the 1960s, maybe into the 1970s. And he was a real media personality at the time, kind of the Ronaldo of his day and culture. Well, here's the title of a book that he wrote during his heyday. This is the title of his book. I can't wait till tomorrow. Because I get better looking every day. (laughs) It's hard to believe, but it is actually true. But God has his hand on Nebuchadnezzar's life though. God wants to work in him. And so his sin has to be dealt with. Think of it though. Every day for a year, he's chosen not to respond. To what God's saying to him. Why? Well maybe he thought that. That God. Didn't have the power to deal with him. If he didn't do what God asked. Maybe the apparent cost of dealing with his sin. This thought of changing his life. Was something that he just couldn't bring himself. To face up to. Maybe he thought that God through his servant Daniel. Was overstating it. That what was being put forward as a big problem wasn't really all that much of a problem after all. Or maybe he recognised this problem. But there were other things he wanted to do. There were other things he wanted to attend to. And then once he'd done that, once he'd lived life as he wanted it, 
Then he said he would give his full mind, his full attention to what God wanted of him. Then he would respond. Then he would obey. But not today. Not now. Not yet. So because of this response, or rather because of the lack of it, so now the time for the way of reason is over. Now it's time for the way of discipline. Now God is going to have to work in Nebuchadnezzar's life the hard way. The way that involves pain. And again, I just want to underline that this is a pattern in, our, in the Bible. That where there are things that God has to deal with in our lives, that God's first option is the way of reason. He sows the seed in our minds, he works in our consciences, and he looks for a response. But when there is no response, then God will move on to option two. To the way of discipline. To the way that involves sometimes hardship, sometimes pain. That's the way. It was, for example, for Jonah. For as I've already said, first the Lord tried to reason with Jonah. He tried to persuade him to go to Nineveh. But when he refused to respond to reason, then he found himself being thrown overboard and swallowed by a whale. After which he went to Nineveh, which I think was a sensible thing to do. And Pharaoh too, he was given the opportunity to respond to Moses. But he chose, he chose stubbornly not to. And so the plagues came. And finally, God's people were set free. A famous verse, Psalm 32 verse 8, sets out these two options, I believe, so clearly. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. That's option one reason but then comes option two the option God would rather not take the way of discipline that way that involves hardship that involves pain here it is do not be like the horse or mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle that is by pressure and by pain or they will not come you. And then Hebrews 12 brings this principle right into the heart of the New Testament in verse 5. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Notice, he disciplines those he loves. Those whose lives he's involved in. Those he's in a love relationship with. Those who he has a purpose for. And that includes all believers in my mind. He will use discipline if he has to. When these people, his people, go off the rails. He'll do that to get them back onto those rails again. But let me just at this point make one thing Something very important, very clear. I'm not saying here 
that whenever you are going through a hard time in life, whenever you're suffering in one way or another, that that is always because there's some sin in your life and God is disciplining you in order to turn you from. I'm not saying that. No, for a while all suffering is sin related in one way or another because it all stems from the, the first sin of man, that sin that through a world created by God to be good and perfect into a state of chaos. Yet, sometimes we suffer not because of any sin of our own, but as the result of the sin of another. We're the victims of someone else's sin. Other times we suffer because of the the indirect effects of sin. We suffer again not because of any particular sin or action of our own. We suffer simply because we are citizens of a sinful world and we have to bear part of the impact of that sin. But what I want to open your minds to today is this fact. That there are times when we suffer, when we go through difficult times, when we endure hardship because of our sin and because God is disciplining us to turn us from that sin. Now, now in this, I have to say, I don't believe that it's so much that God instigates suffering, but rather that he permits Satan to bring suffering into our lives. And then, by his almighty power, he turns the table and he uses that suffering as we respond to him to bring us back to him. All I ask is that you keep this in mind when you're going through a tough period in life and that you just ask yourselves those questions. Am I suffering because I'm the victim of the direct sin of someone else? Am I suffering because of the indirect sin of this world? Because I'm a citizen of this world. There's nothing in my life that I can particularly see. It's just, you know, part of what's going on. Or, or, as I examine my life, can I see sin in my life, significant sin that's undealt with? And so could it be that God's desire through what I'm now going through is to discipline me and so lead me back to him. Back though to Nebuchadnezzar. And what we find is that straight after his his proud boast in verse 30, we're told here that the words were still on his lips just to make sure that he got the connection between the way that he was living, the state of his heart, and what happened to him in his life. Straight after that, the Lord pronounced his judgment on him. Verse 31, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign and the kingdoms of men He gives to anyone he wishes. Now, I actually discovered a while ago in looking at E.J. Young's book on Daniel that that this is actually a recorded medical condition where someone imagines himself to be an animal and to an extent acts like an animal. 
He says anyway that its technical term is lycanthropy. The interesting thing is that in, in the cases that have been observed that would relate to, to Nehemiah, Nebuchadnezzar, I told you in my head, Nebuchadnezzar's experience here, there always seems to be at least the remnant of, a, of an inner awareness of self-identity. The, the person who's going through this still retains that, that shred of a sense of who they really are. And we see this in, in Nebuchadnezzar's later actions. But what a description we're given here of what actually happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The most powerful man in the world. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, now Ronald Wallace, I mentioned him earlier, but again here, he's likened Nebuchadnezzar's experience at this point to the image that we find in, in Jeremiah 18 which incidentally was written about the same time as Daniel. And it's to, to that image, that, that famous image that we find there of the potter and the clay. With God, of course, being the potter and, and we, God's people, being the clay. And so the picture is that, that God the potter is at work on a piece of clay. But it's not turning out the way it's supposed to do. It's developing faults that that just shouldn't be there. So what does God do? What does the potter do? He could just throw the clay away. Dispose of it. Reject it. But you see, he doesn't do that because he can't do that. Because he sees that this piece of clay can be made into something beautiful. He sees the potential that it has. To him, this isn't just rubbish that can be thrown away. It's something intrinsically precious. Or could he maybe then just ignore the flaws? Just keep on going? Just, just kind of let things go as they are? Well, if the pot doesn't matter, then the flaws won't either. If the potter doesn't really care about his work, if he's not a craftsman, if he's no reputation to preserve then it won't bother him too much. But if this is intended to be a work of art from the hands of a master craftsman, then it's got to be just right. It's got to be the way it's supposed to be. Good enough won't do. Have you ever though watched a a potter at work? Have you ever seen a, a pot being reworked time and time again? Potters aren't always gentle. They can't afford to be. It takes a lot of pressure. It takes a lot of hard work. And sometimes, not just one or two goes, but many, many goes before the perfect piece of pottery is produced. Now, we know that in life, don't we? That sometimes the potter has to work us and work with us again and again. You see, this is what happened here in Nebuchadnezzar's life. The potter has wanted to make something out of him. So he's been put back on the potter's wheel again. But you see, the flaw in his life runs right through the heart of his being. And so because of that, it's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to involve a lot of pressure, a lot of pain. 
How long was Nebuchadnezzar to be on the wheel for? Well, it says in verse 32, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Well, as we, as we said earlier in this study in Daniel, and I'm sure we know that the number seven in the Bible is a symbol of completion. It's a symbol of fulfillment, of perfection, of the ultimate. So Nebuchadnezzar then was to be on that wheel for as long as it took for him to learn the lesson God intended him to learn. His turning point, though, is set out for us in verse 34. And just notice what it involves. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified Him who lives forever. You see, it kept on going until Nebuchadnezzar yielded to God. Until he realised who God really is. Until he gave God His rightful place as Sovereign Lord. And it was all started by Nebuchadnezzar, this man whose life was consumed by himself, it started by him raising his eyes to heaven. As soon as he turned to look for God, as soon as he turned to seek God, to search for him, God was there to be found. And then Nebuchadnezzar is restored to be an even greater king. And certainly, an infinitely better man than he ever was before. My honour and my splendour were restored to me. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And I hope you catch the irony there. When Nebuchadnezzar had been the most powerful man in the world, the conqueror of nations, the empire builder, the architect of the world's greatest city, all hadn't meant a thing to God. All his success, all his power, all of it hadn't impressed God one bit. All that he achieved, it didn't. Because you see, God could see his heart. And what God saw there distressed him. But then, Nebuchadnezzar is broken. He's brought right down to the lowliest point. He gets to the very end of himself. In the eyes of man, he's fallen to be the very lowest of the low. But as he reaches out to God in faith, and by doing that in that moment pleases God, so then God restores him. This time with a right heart, with a right attitude, with a love in his heart for God and others he'd never had before, God restores him, lifts him up and takes him to a better place than he'd ever been. I just want to ask the question, what about you today? About where you are? Is life tough? Is life hard for you? Do you maybe feel that you right now are on that potter's wheel with Nebuchadnezzar? That's what I have to ask you. Just ask the question. Are there things in your life today 
that need to be dealt with. Attitudes that need to be changed. Grudges that need to be let go. Gossip that has to be stopped. Pride that has to be broken. Sin that has to be repented of. I want to say, listen. God is not going to give up on you until you face up to this and until you do what needs to be done. And do you know why? Because you're too precious to him. You matter too much to him. He will keep you on that potter's wheel and he'll keep putting you back on that potter's wheel until the job is done. But you know, it struck me and it scared me as I was looking at this that there was another choice here Nebuchadnezzar could have made. He could have chosen to stay in that broken state far away from God I think too many Christians make that mistake and I want to say to you don't make that mistake today maybe you have maybe you've been making it for years maybe as a Christian you know you've been living far away from God and you stayed there because you've been too stubborn to do anything about it I want to say to you now, don't let that last a day longer. Don't let it last a moment longer. With Nebuchadnezzar, raise your eyes to heaven. Turn to God. Yield your life to God. Put him first. Begin today again to live for his glory. But right now, God might start a new work in you and that you might know the joy and the blessing that comes as we live close to God because this is your heritage. This is what God wants for you. Not a second rate, but the very best Christian life that can be. Let's just come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for the example of Nebuchadnezzar. And Father, we pray that you'll open our hearts, open our minds, and that where your word is applicable, where it's speaking directly into our heart, Lord, help us not to leave that there. Help us to respond. Help us to come. Help us to yield to you as our sovereign God. In Jesus' name, amen.